Open your Bibles to Psalm 16. Psalm 16 will be our text. We'll look at the whole of this beautiful psalm this morning. And just by way of information, our psalm today is one of six of the 150 psalms that are identified as a miktam of David. And that word means an engraved writing. It can also mean a poem. It's the root uh, of the word for something carved out of or on pure gold. Now, most scholars agree that this word is meant to be taken figuratively. It doesn't mean to actually carve on a gold plate the words of the six miktam uh, uh, psalms, but rather to understand them in an application form, as we'll talk about here this morning. Now, the other uh, miktams are sequential in chapters 60, or 56 to 60, and like our psalm, they have a very definite beginning. Our psalm begins with the phrase, preserve me. Psalm 56 and 57 begin with, be merciful to me. Psalm 59 starts with, deliver me and defend me. Psalm 58, it is an indictment against Israel's enemies. And Psalm 60 is a plea for the Lord to restore, repair, and give victory to Israel after some unknown defeat they had experienced. Now, the backstory to Psalm 59 is when Saul sent men to David's house to kill him, as recorded in 1 Samuel 19. How's that for a father-in-law? Yeah. Psalm 57 is about when David hid in a cave, presumably the cave at En Gedi from King Saul in his pursuit. And the background of Psalm 56 is when David was captured by the Philistines in Gath. Remember, he was carrying Goliath's sword, and he was in Goliath's hometown, and he had to play as though he'd lost his mind in order to escape. Now, that tells us that the Miktams are psalms that are wrote when things weren't going so well for David, or they were written with a backdrop of things being at their worst. And the reason the figurative meaning is the preferred meaning regarding these particular psalms is that it implies the content of the Miktam uh, psalms as something worth remembering, not just something worth writing down, something worth carving, but something that ought to impact both our hearts and minds. In other words, there are great spiritual lessons from these literal events from the life of King David, and many Bible interpreters believe that these particular psalms are like gold. Now, in Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, we have a foundation for our understanding regarding the uh, need to distinguish figurative meanings from literal language. And uh, in the Shema, the Lord says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And Jesus would add, with all your mind. And Jesus is God, so he can add to Scripture. Amen. Amen. We need to be careful about doing that. And these words which I command you today shall be where? In your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. You shall walk uh, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Well, in the doorposts of Israel, 
on a hotel room door, on a business door, and the door uh, entering a home, and all the passageway doors throughout a home, you will find in Israel mezuzahs, which are little boxes that have the Shema inside. You will see Jews wearing, Orthodox Jews wearing phylacteries during prayers, a binding of a box on their hand or on their forehead. And yet in the midst of this, the things the Lord told them to do is that they are to be in their heart. And what God said when he said, bind them on your hand, bind them on your head, put them on the doorpost to your house, is I want my people living according to my word. I want my word to be on their minds. I want my words to dictate the actions of their hands and determine their going out and coming in. They're rising up and lying down. So it's important that we distinguish figurative meanings from literal texts unless we wind up with boxes on our heads and uh, leather straps on our arms. Now, interesting that our psalm today is worthy of being engraved on a plaque or in in stone for sure, but the real value is how it changes our heart, is what it says to us, especially in a season like this. We're going to find our word for the year, rest in verse 9. And the Hebrew word is actually shakan, and it means to tabernacle, it means to permanently stay. Interestingly, it's the root word for shekinah. Now, each of the Mithong Psalms are associated with a time of battle, or personal trouble, or attack on David, and we can glean from that, that as David wrote by inspiration of the Spirit, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Yes. Amen? Yes. All scripture, so that includes our psalm today. And that tells us that we can have rest, and we can bring God glory, no matter what's going on in our life or in the world. And this is what David is writing about. And we quoted from 1 Peter 4, last week, and I'll remind you again of what he said concerning fiery trials, and that we're not to think we're going to be strangers to them, because we're all going to have fiery trials. Sometimes they come in a row for a long time. So you guys know what I'm talking about today. Now Peter says this in 1 Peter 4.14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, what's the next word? Blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Isn't that what we want? Yes. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. And again, this tells us we can bring God glory by resting in him while the enemies of God blaspheme all around us. Is that happening today? Yes. There's blasphemy going on all around us today. Trials and tribulations surround us today. And yet these are prime opportunities for us to rest in the Lord and bring him glory. Now, I believe there's a reason why Psalm 16 is separated from the sequential psalms that follow that are labeled as miktams of David, and that is because it is distinct in its format. Psalm 16 records a progression, if you will. It first reflects a past or present crisis, whatever David was calling on the Lord to preserve him from or through. It's followed by a petition that God would be his refuge. Then David moves to an offering of praise, followed by a profession of trust that ends with being in the presence of the Lord, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. You know what that sounds like? Sounds like life. Sounds like life, including the life after this one. And aren't you glad there's a life after this one? Aren't you glad it's longer and better? And we will be perfect when we are with the Lord someday. Now, this brings us 
to our title this first Sunday of May, and it's taken directly from our text, and our title is simply Resting in Hope. Resting in Hope. Now, I toyed with it, but refrained from titling our time The Restroom. <laughs> You're welcome. For obvious reasons, but the question still remains, have we made room for resting in hope in the midst of all that's going on around us, in the midst of our personal trials and troubles. Now, because the Mictoms are all psalms recorded around troubles David had in his life, and yet our PowerPoint verse says, his heart is glad and his flesh rests in hope, we have to come away with this as a reminder that this is not exclusive to King David. It's something that we can all do as well. So are you ready to examine this miktam, this golden psalm this morning yes. and learn how we can rest in hope as well? Yes. Stand and read with me, please, the whole of Psalm 16. We'll read all the way through and then go back and touch on uh, some of the key points for us. Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Thank you, Lord. Yes. And Father, we ask now your blessings on the reading of your word. We ask you would give us ears to hear what you're saying to us today in the midst of the trials and troubles that we all share and the ones we encounter individually. We pray that we would learn from our time how to rest in hope through all these things. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now the first ingredient, so to speak, of resting in hope is going to be found in verses 1 through 4, where David reveals his understanding and what should be our understanding and perception of God. He prays that God preserve him. He uses the word El, El Shaddai. God Almighty is who he is referring to. And that tells us David understood the majesty of God. And then from his soul, he says to the Lord, and he uses the tetragrammaton, the four uh, consonants that we understand the name of the Lord to be written in in the Hebrew, Yahweh. And this speaks about the personal name of God, meaning the existent one or the eternal one, telling us David understood the personal nature of God as well as his majesty. And then he says to Yahweh, you are my Lord. And here he uses the word Adonai. And that means master. 
which tells us David understood the role of God in his life. And then David says that his own goodness is nothing apart from the Lord, which tells us David recognized his need for God the Lord. And David understood well that there is none righteous, no, not one. As a matter of fact, you back up two Psalms where he opened with the fool is said in his heart, no God. And then he wrote this after that. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men, Psalm 14, 2 and 3, to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. Read it out loud, please. There is none who does good, no, not one. This is why David would say in this miktam that apart from you, there is nothing good about me. And the same David, whom the Holy Spirit inspired to write the words of Psalm 14, also wrote the words of Psalm 16. And by that contrast reveals that the saints, the kadosh, the sacred ones who are on the earth, he calls them excellent ones, which means the mighty, the gallant, the noble, and the mighty. David uh, surrounds himself or delights in those types of people. Now, we see this reflected in other Davidic Psalms, like Psalm 101.2, where David says, I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? Have we been saying a lot lately? When are you coming to get us? Yes. Nothing new. David felt the same way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a what? Perfect heart. Then he would write later, verse 6, same chapter. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land, that they, shall dwell, they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he will what? He will serve me. Now, the word perfect means completeness. It can mean mature, talks about, obviously, or implies a, a spiritual attitude. And it's a word that represents both moral integrity and personal uprightness. And David said, first of all, this is going to be my practice at home. Secondly, those who work with me and dwell with me and serve alongside me are going to be exactly the same. That will be the practice of those who sit down and fellowship with the king. He says, those who hasten after other gods, he will not participate in their rituals. Now, what exact uh, pagan religion practiced the drinking of blood uh, isn't mentioned in any of the commentaries, but it wasn't an uncommon uh, practice of pagan religions. David said he wouldn't take up their names. That means to accept or to give furtherance to or to extol in any way. And David said, I'm not going to exalt false religions. I'm not going to come alongside these things in an ecumenical fashion like we see today and give them validity. I'm not even going to talk about the things that these pagan groups believe. And this is birthed out of his understanding of the character and nature of God we looked at in verses 1 and 2. Jeremiah would also say in 1713, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be what? Ashamed. Ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth, the Lord speaking, because they have forsaken the Lord who is what? The fountain of living waters. Now, remember the word rest in our text means to reside or permanently stay, which then begs the question, how do we reside and permanently stay full of hope? Well, here's the first step in that direction, remembering the context of the Mikthom 
Psalms that there was tough stuff going on in David's life when he wrote them. Now, here's the first thing we need to recognize. Listen this morning. Resting in hope is contingent on taking God at his word. Resting in hope is contingent on taking God at his word. Now, David looked to God as his source of preservation. And he trusted God to be exactly who God's word said he is. His trust wasn't simply in the fact that there is a God in existence. He didn't settle for there being a a creator personage who was outside of time and the physicality of the earth that would have the power to speak it into existence, an intelligent designer. He believed in a personal God. He believed in a personal God who was also his Lord. He understood that this personal God who was also his Lord is God Almighty. And we need to remember Hebrews eleven six that tells us, without faith it is impossible to please him. Who's him? God. For he who comes to God must believe, one, that he is, and that he is a rewarder of who? Those who diligently seek him. That's what David is doing. Preserve me, Lord. I'm seeking your preservation. I'm seeking your lordship. I'm seeking your power. I'm seeking your almighty nature. And listen, we know today that there's lots of people who believe there is a God, but they don't believe that he's creator. They believe that there needed to be an evolutionary process or gradualism or naturalism or materialism or whatever you want to throw at it other than the label that I like to use, a stupid theory. (laughs) They believe there's a God, but that evolution was necessary to bring all things into existence. I don't know about you, but when I'm having problems, I need a God who can say, let there be light before there's even luminaries created in the sky. I need to have a God who measures the universe with the span of his hand, who names and numbers the stars, who sits over the circle of the earth, who rides the clouds, who laughs at his enemies, who nothing is too hard for and through whom I can do all things. I don't need some distant deity that is unrelatable or cannot... Uh, be approached and certainly wouldn't reach down and touch and change my life. I'm not satisfied with simply an acknowledgement that there is a higher power out there. And we hear that language used a lot in many circles. And yeah, there is a higher power out there, but there's only one. And he is the Lord and his name is Yahweh. And he is all the things David understood him to be. And this is why David gives the sound counsel that we ought not to acknowledge the practices or beliefs of those who go after other gods. Why? Because there's no resting and hope to be found in them. You cannot find the hope that we all need, the rest that we all desire and long for and pursue through false religion. I'm not sure what the delay was about there, but (laughs) listen, the practice of acknowledging what other people believe and even linking arms with them spiritually is being normalized in recent years. And this is absolutely part of the end time scenario. It tells us we are getting close to the rapture of the church, followed by the tribulation, followed by the second coming, followed by the millennium, followed by eternity in heaven with the Lord. Man, that's a good progression, isn't it? Now, Think about what's going on today that's in in conflict with what David is saying. We have interfaith prayer meetings today. You know, I was told that uh, a certain group that comes to the door, or not the ones on the bicycle, but the other one, (laughs) 
<clears throat> the ones who stand on the corner and sell magazines, that they won't pray with you because they don't know who you're praying to. So after a rather exciting conversation in my driveway one time, I said to one of these guys and the guy he had with him, I said, let's pray before we talk any further. He totally panicked. I put my hand on his shoulder like we're going to pray together, and he about jumped out of his skin. He said, I'm not praying with you. Well, why not? He said, because I don't know who you're praying to. I said, I'm going to pray to Jehovah God. Where did you hear that from? Well, it's in the Bible. Duh, you ought to crack it and read it once in a while. I mean, you know, there, there's no fellowship that can be had. And finding common ground between religions is a fool's endeavor because there are none. And personal sincerity being elevated above facts and truth is what we're seeing today. And David says, I'll have none of it. Yeah. Amen. I'm not going to surround myself with those things. And he's not going to have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. As Paul would also write in Ephesians 5, 11 to 13, to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather do what? Expose them, reveal them for what they are. And then he says, it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by what? Light, a metaphor for truth, for whatever makes manifest is light. And listen, the exclusivity of the Christian faith and message has fallen prey to the egalitarianism that is ruling our day today. In our day, all things have to be equal. Everybody has to have the same pay. This is socialism, which is a sin, by the way. Have I said that before? Yeah, I have. I'll say it again in the future, so stay tuned. Socialism is a sin. God doesn't want us trusting the government. God wants us trusting him. And he wants us to work with the mind, the back, and the body that he gave us and support ourselves. As a matter of fact, he would inspire Paul to say those who won't work should not eat. I've been working hard lately, I'm sure <laughs> all of us would agree. <laughs> I had a friend who was an uh, avid cyclist, and uh, I remember Terry asked him one time, what is with these guys that are out cycling, and they're riding these big, long 50-mile rides, 100-mile rides, and they got these big old bellies on them. He, you know, what is that all about? He said, well, they ride so they can eat. <laughs> well, that's why we work, right? We work so we can eat. Now, in Matthew 15, 7 and 9, Jesus said to his favorite group, his pet name, hypocrites. He's speaking, uh, speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. Back up a few verses and you'll see it. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips or their words, but their heart is what? Far from me, which means in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Is there hope to be found in following the commandments of men? No. Absolutely not. Jesus said, as a matter of fact, this is the practice of hypocrites who claim to also follow God. Now, this is what David is highlighting for us in this golden psalm. The Lord preserves those who trust in him. And those who trust in him understands that their goodness comes from God and that God is El Shaddai, God is Yahweh, and God is Adonai. 
And therefore, he alone is worthy of praise. He alone deserves recognition of, or as king of kings and creator of all things. And when trials and tribulation comes, the last thing we need is some man-made, fable-based religion or a meaningless ritual accompanied by empty promises. We need someone who we can actually trust in, who has proven himself to be who he claims to be in his word. For God alone can preserve us. And he alone is where we can find rest and hope through trust in him. Now, look at 5 through 8 one more time. And David says, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me when? In the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. And David acknowledges the blessings of God in his own life. And he says, the Lord is his portion. The Lord is the one who keeps his cup full. In other words, the Lord is his source of blessing. He then mentions that the lines have fallen to him in pleasant places. And the word line speaks of a measuring line. And David is saying, God has blessed me greatly. Life has been good. He has inherited good things from God in this life. He would later expand on this when he wrote Psalm 103. He said in 1 to 5, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his what? Benefits. And then he gives a list. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And we might think, well, of course David blessed the Lord. Of course he was thankful. His lines by his own admission fell to him in pleasant places. I mean, think about it. He was a king. Therefore, he was rich. And while David does acknowledge this in Psalm 16 and 103, he also establishes in both Psalms that the spiritual blessings of God are the greatest blessings of all. <laughs> Thank you, whoever that was over here. Get on the bus over here. The spiritual blessings of God are the greatest blessings of all. Amen. Amen. Now, in 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10, Paul says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. We've all heard the adage, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And having food and clothing with these things, we shall be what? Content, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drawn, drown men rather in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Listen, the Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with what? Many sorrows. Many sorrows. I think it noteworthy that those whom the Bible records like David as being significantly materially blessed are those who didn't seek it. Think about Abraham, who back in his day, 
a man's possessions were measured by his livestock. And Abraham looked to the left and the right and gave the best land to his nephew Lot for his flocks and herds. God blessed Abraham. Where did Lot wind up? Sodom. You see what David is saying makes sense and has always been true. Solomon was given a chance to ask God for anything that he wanted. The Lord initiated that conversation. Tell me what you want, Solomon. I have appointed you king to replace your father, David. What is it you want? Solomon said, give me wisdom. Wisdom to rule your people. And the Lord replied and said, because you didn't ask for length of days or uh, fabulous riches, he said, not only am I going to give you wisdom like no one has ever had or ever will have, I'm going to give you the things you didn't ask for as well. And he was obviously an extremely uh, wealthy man as well as wise. But at the end of his days, he didn't do so good. Now, listen, are we thankful for our material blessings? Yes. Whether they are much or little? Yes. Oh, that was a pretty good follow-up there. I was a little concerned that that would be a little weaker. But listen, do we recognize that godliness with contentment is great gain? Yes. I mean, that's the big, the contentment is the gain that is more than the riches. And then David says, because the Lord is at my right hand, which is figurative for the Lord being his strength, he says, I shall not be moved. And I think it's been well said, nobody on their deathbed ever says, I wish I had one more dollar. They spend their life thinking, I wish I had one more dollar, but they say, I wish I had one more hour. I wish I had one more day. I wish I had one more moment or Opportunity. So listen, this is very practical, very obvious. You already know it, but it fits in our text and time. Here's our second observation. Listen this morning. Resting in hope is a spiritual condition unrelated to material possessions. Resting in hope is a spiritual condition unrelated to material possessions. And I'll explain why we needed that as our point in a moment. <clears throat> now that means we can have rest in hope no matter what we have or what we don't have. And what David is saying here is, yes, I have been blessed by God materially, but the greatest blessings of God in my life is the Lord's counsel and how he traveled with me in the night seasons. All people have night seasons, dark periods, dry periods. Anybody know what a dry period is? Every, we've all gone through those times where we don't feel a whole lot, where we're not just kind of oozing uh, the Holy Spirit, so to speak. We're just kind of plodding along through life. Yeah. <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about? Yes. We've all had that experience. Job knew a bit about struggles as well, and yet he said, in conclusion, after having lost everything and everyone, he said in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet will I what? Trust him. Now, there's a place we've all been to, to some degree in our hearts and minds, subconsciously or consciously, and that is feeling like praying or feeling like worshiping. You know, I, I, I'm not going to go to praise night. I just don't feel like praising the Lord. Oh, really? You only praise the Lord when you feel like it? You praise the Lord when you don't feel like it? When's he worthy of praise? When you're feeling good? All the time. All the time he's worthy of praise, right? 
And listen, sometimes I think we get to a place emotionally and mentally where we say, you know, I don't feel like I can, I can really have an intimate prayer time or worship the Lord until he fixes the problem where the trial comes to an end. Now, there's a name for that type of attitude. You want to know what it is? Sure. It's called pouting. <laughs> and we've all done it, right? Yeah. Well, listen, God is good all the time. Amen. No matter what's going on. And Proverbs 18.10 reminds us the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are what? Safe. Safe, protected, preserved. And this is what David is saying. You're my portion and my cup, not the pleasant lines that have fallen to me. You, God, are my portion. You, God, are what makes my cup full. You have gotten me through the night seasons of life, and I will always set you before me. The word set means to give place to or yield unto. And David is in essence saying what Jesus would rather, rather uh, later uh, report in the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount, David was saying, I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and let the adding to be left to the Lord because he is at my right hand. He is my strength and because of him, I will not be moved. Is that true for you today? Yes. It's true for all of us. And listen, here's why our point is framed the way it is. There's a movement today that says by faith, you can be rich. <laughs> by faith, you can be healthy. And this promotes exactly the opposite of what the Bible actually teaches. Do Christians get sick? Yes. Are all Christians wealthy? No. no, they're not. Is it because you lack faith? No. no, it's because God portions out what he does to whom he desires. And, you know, I, I think we'd all like a bigger portion sometimes, <laughs> right? But yet... David is saying here that material things and good health are not what establishes our ability to rest in hope. Because the Bible says riches take wings. How many have heard money talks? Yeah. Right? Yeah. It does. You know what it says? Goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> health changes. Right? Yeah. You know, this, this, this getting older thing just stinks. I, I want nothing to do with it. You know, you just say, you get out of bed and you just, you feel bad. You know, that I, I, I've read it before and now it's come to be a reality. You know, when you get to a certain age, you can get hurt sleeping. <laughs> right? Yeah. You get up and, oh, I can't walk. What did I do? What, what, what was I doing in that dream? <laughs> but someday we got a new package coming. Amen. Yeah. A serious upgrade. And David says, listen, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places, but those things are far inferior to resting in hope through trusting in God the Lord. Now, verses 9 through 11, we'll wrap it up. He goes on to say, therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Those are two separate thoughts. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Because the Lord is David's strength, at his right hand, he shall not be moved. And therefore his heart is glad and he rejoices and his flesh also rejoices. 
rests in hope. Now, rest in this context obviously can be the Hebrewism for death. And in verse 10, he sets the context meaning uh, and meaning for us. David is referring to his own death when he speaks of his flesh resting and hope based on the fact that his soul will not be left in Hades or Sheol, the domain of the dead. And then David switches gears and gives us one of the great messianic verses of the Psalms. And he established for, uh, for us why he has this hope. And that is because the Holy One, that's a title, a messianic title, the Holy One of Israel will not be allowed to see corruption. Now, Jesus was in the heart of the earth of the tomb for the same number of days. Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, according to Matthew 12, 40, which was for how many days? Three days. Now, it's very specific, about three days and three nights. And listen, we all understand it, you know, that when you say, we're going on vacation in three days, that doesn't mean you're leaving in exactly 72 hours. It means you're leaving within that window of the next three days, today, tomorrow, and the day after that. It doesn't have to be 72 full hours that Jesus was in the tomb. Come on, that's just common sense, right? So part of three consecutive days Jesus was in the tomb. Jonah was in the belly of a great fish. And David is writing about what Daniel then would later prophesy of in Daniel 9.26, where after the 62 weeks, the Mashiach, the Messiah, shall be cut off, but not for himself. Remember, cut off is a Hebraic term for dead. But not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. This speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by Titus. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Now, the Messiah of Israel was going to die, but he wouldn't die because of what he did. He would die for the sins of others and not for himself. And yet the Holy One would not see the decomposition of his body, but like Jonah, would be delivered from his tomb after three days. And then David closes with the famed verse, in verse 11, and gets back to the subject of the path of life, which brings us to the final component of resting in hope, and that is this. Listen, resting in hope is knowing that death was conquered on our behalf. Resting in hope is knowing, not hoping, knowing that death was conquered on our behalf. You know, sometimes I wonder if, if some Christians really like the idea of going to heaven. The way some people talk, you, you would think it's more of a sentence than a reward. Like, you know, well, I hope he doesn't come too soon because I haven't been to Europe yet. Or I hope he doesn't come too soon because I'm still single or this or that. As though, you know, they're going to get to heaven and say, oh, man, I'm so bummed. I didn't get to do this or I didn't get to do that. That's not what heaven is going to be like. We're not going to get there and say, man, I missed out on all that awesome stuff on earth. Like wars and disease and death, you know, cool stuff like that. Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, so when this corruptible, this corruptible body has put on incorruption, there's our new body. And this mortal, meaning finite, has put on immortality, infinite. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. The law convicts us all to death. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I couldn't help but think of an adage that has floated around for a long time. I don't know who wrote it, but some sage gave this uh, statement. He said, to dwell above with, above with saints we love will certainly be glory. To dwell below with saints we know, now that's a different story. <laughs> now, life has its ups and downs. There are twists and turns. There are contrary people within the body of Christ. Don't believe me? Just start a YouTube channel. <laughs> or just teach about Bible prophecy. And you'll meet some folks who are way smarter than you, according to them. <laughs> now, <clears throat> they all go to other churches, of course. They're not <clears throat> talking about anyone here. We're being good Christians and talking about other people behind their back, right? <clears throat> now, those things are all true. But man, heaven's going to be awesome. Heaven is going to be wonderful. But the source of our rest, hope, and joy is what David says here. The Holy One will not see corruption. But he's going to rise from the dead, having died for our sins, so we too can rise someday in immortal incorruptibility and forever be with the Lord. No wonder David's heart was glad. And no wonder he rejoiced. He knew his flesh would rest in hope and his soul would not be left in Hades. And Paul reminds us in uh, Philippians 3, 20 to 21, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body. That's what we're predestined to, that Paul wrote of in Romans chapter 8. We're not... Uh, pre-selected for salvation, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of the body of Christ. Here Paul says the same thing, that we may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue, what are the next two words? All, All things. Does that include death? Yes. All things to himself. Now, I'm sure that you are all like me in the sense that my eagerness for the Lord to come get us has exponentially increased in the past 12 months. Yes. Amen. Yet we must occupy till he comes. Amen. Right? We need to be about the Father's business. And yes, we need to go to the world and preach the gospel. But listen, eagerly waiting and working are not mutually exclusive. You can do both. We can be excited that he is coming again. And we can be about the Father's business simultaneously. Yep. No, you really can't. I'm not making this up. <laughs> now, God has shown us the path of life. And that's through Jesus. Yeah. The end of the path through faith and trust in him awaits fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. I am resting in that hope, even so, Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful psalm. Thank you for inspiring uh, David to write of his own life experiences. And uh, even though this particular psalm, we may not know exactly what he needed to be preserved from and through, 
but we do know you did it. And Lord, we thank you that you are with us. Your eye is always upon us. And you who keep Israel, the, those governed by God or the princes of God, you never sleep nor slumber at that task. So Lord, we thank you that you are watching over us. You will get us through. We will arrive where we're supposed to be, our promised, predestined destination of being glorified and forever with you. Uh, Lord, we pray is, is even around the corner. But Lord, help us to uh, keep our focus on you as we await that moment and twinkling of an eye experience we all long for. Help us to be telling other people about you with a sense of urgency like we've never had before because we believe that moment of twinkling of an eye experience could happen at any moment. So Lord, we thank you that you have uh, all, of, all of our lines have fallen in, in pleasant places. You blessed us tremendously by being our God Almighty, by being our personal God, Yahweh, by being our Lord and Master, Adonai. And we thank you that that's true for every single person in this room or any watching online. So, Lord, may we, too, rest in hope. May our flesh, like David said, rest in the hope of your coming. We praise you. We honor you. We give you thanks today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.